fear I shall miss supper again tonight. I have a neighbourhood watch meeting. Yes, I know. I'm going to make a stew. I'll leave some in the slow cooker. Ah, yes, absolutely. Lovely, delicious. What a splendid thought. <laughs> or else I could just stop off at a takeaway, you know, to save you that trouble. No trouble. I've already diced the turnips. <laughs> Good. Good. So that's settled then. Warmed up stew. <laughs> what a treat. Much better than bringing home some dull old chicken tikka masala <laughs> with Rogan Josh and fluffy naan bread and <laughs> pilo rice, lots of crispy poppadoms, pickle, chutney, cool, cool cucumber writer. <laughs> Thank goodness I won't be trying to force that down my throat tonight. You're listening to The Seasoned Migrant. A show about culture, migration, and ideas, and how these have shaped our understanding of the world. I'm Leonard Vaut. And I'm Yusuf Amanola. And on this episode, we'll be talking about curry, the social history of a globalized dish. So... Curry and South Asian cuisine as a whole is this incredibly complex and diverse subset of food. And it has so many influences and in turn has influenced so many other cuisines. And now it's come to a point where it's part and parcel of British culture. I mean, it's very English to get an Indian takeaway on the weekend on a Saturday night. But unfortunately, what you would be getting is a much more watered down version of what you would get in the Indian subcontinent. So when we were thinking about this episode topic, we initially thought about covering the journey that South Asian food makes to the UK and then the West more generally. And we thought that kind of journey would be the core of this cultural exchange. But actually we realized that when you look at the dishes that came out of South Asia, so many of them were actually marriages of lots of very different influences from around the world. And it wasn't just about the cuisines that contributed towards making the dishes, but even the ingredients themselves had to be sourced from around the world. And this spread ended up happening in so many directions. And dishes like biryani that actually started out in the Indian subcontinent now have become staples in places like the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries. Right. And as you mentioned biryani, it's important to mention that while we've titled this episode Curry, we're actually going to be talking about South Asian food, and in particular food from India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. Because while there are so many dishes from this region, these have all been lazily and almost blasphemously been clumped together into this one category of curry. And that's because, well, in Tamil and Malayalam, the word curry refers to gravy, which was then adopted by the Portuguese and then in turn adopted by the British. And this really doesn't capture the different nuances within each dish. And when you look at the sheer variety in the subcontinent, you realize that there's so much complexity in the food. And so this complexity comes in so many different layers. We can see it, for example, in religion and a dish like Rogan Josh. So Rogan Josh comes from Kashmir. And if it's a Muslim cook making it, they'll be including garlic and onions in the dish. But Brahmins in Kashmir who follow their Hindu diet won't be eating garlic and onions. So they use fennel seeds and other spices instead. But Rogan Josh being a thing and being enjoyed by Brahmins of the region 
is in itself quite striking because a lot of Brahmins in the rest of the country aren't happy to eat meat. Yet Rogan Josh in Kashmir is a thing. And, you know, we're explaining these differences, but it goes without saying that all these different regions and places have their own histories, their own tastes, influences, particularly to those places. And even just what ingredients are available in each place will shape what it is that regional cuisine ends up being. And Goans, for example, they'll be using a lot of coconut milk. In Chennai, they prefer rice, whereas in Punjab, they prefer chapatis. And not just that, but they're also known for adding a lot of chili in their food, whereas Gujaratis, for example, sweeten their dishes. And even the spices used have a massive influence on flavor and aroma of a dish. And so kitchens knew that, and that's why they used to employ these masalchis, who were people that would come in in the morning, and they would freshly grind spices on this flat grindstone that was basically this big pestle and mortar. And that's what the kitchens would use for the day. At the same time, spices take different times to actually release their flavors. So, for example, cumin burns very quickly and is usually added to a dish towards the end, whereas coriander is much more slow releasing in flavor and so is added to the cooking oil before even turmeric. And so, all of these different little intricacies have a massive impact on the overall flavor of each one of these dishes. And to come back to biryani, we have this really cool metaphor of how all these things came together. Well, biryani is actually a marriage of two different dishes, the first of which came from Persia. Back in the day, Persia was known for its pilau, which still exists today. But back in the day, it was, it was known as a Persian thing that, well, had come from different places. But for Persians, rice was the centerpiece of meals, not just a side dish. And it would be infused with turmeric and saffron. And on particularly special occasions, they would include chicken as well. And this dish then met the love for spices from what was then called Hindustan. And to it was added cloves, fennel, black pepper, bay leaf, and coriander, cumin, cardamom, and all kinds of other things. And what was amazing is that it didn't just create one dish, but there were so many different varieties of it. And actually, when we looked up the Wikipedia entry for it in English, there were 19 separate varieties listed for biryani. And that was just within the Indian subcontinent. And in fact, when you look at the influence that Palau has had, not just in biryani, but across the world, you see its elements embedded in so many different dishes. You see it in pilav in Turkey. And in Spain, they used seafood instead of normal lamb or chicken and emphasized the saffron in it to make it paella. And in Italy, they added butter and made risotto. Palau is one of those globalized dishes that has influenced so many different cuisines across the world. So with biryani, we saw this dish that drew on influences from neighboring countries and regions, most particularly Persia. But now we're turning to the vindaloo, which was unexpectedly the result of influences from not just South Asia, but the world at large. And so for those that don't know, the vindaloo is the most famous of all dishes from Goa. And it's a dish prepared by marinating meat in garlic and palm vinegar, 
and is known for its very spicy gravy. And what gives Vindaloo its its kick is, of course, chili. But what's really interesting and unexpected is that the chili that we so closely associate with Indian cuisine or subcontinent cuisine didn't actually originate from the region. In Latin America, there was a strain of peppers called ají. And when the Portuguese arrived in 1498 and in subsequent trips, they brought it over to India, presumably from Brazil and then to Lisbon and then to the subcontinent. And it only took 30 years for three types of chili to be growing around Goa. It became extremely popular because they were so much easier to grow than the local variety and so much easier to store. And all of that made them really cheap. So much so that an Indian poet called it the savior of the poor for providing a really easy and cheap way to give taste to the simple lentil and rice dishes eaten by poor people in the country. So the Portuguese didn't just introduce this chili and the ingredients into India, but they also introduced the recipe of the vindaloo itself. So the vindaloo is this adaptation of a Portuguese dish that I'm not going to say the name because I'll butcher it, but it basically translates to meat in wine vinegar and garlic. And the vindaloo name is a almost corruption of the original. And the Portuguese influence in Goa was so strong because Portugal established it as the capital of their Estado de India, the territory they used as their base for their trade in spices in particular. And in this Portuguese pseudo-state in India, there were two main ways in which these cultural connections were coming together. The first of these were marriages between Portuguese men and Indian women. And of course, food being such an important part of the household, it meant that a lot of these different cultures and cuisines were coming together to form new dishes. Then there was a second point, which was about how deeply Portugal was trying to inculcate its religion and its culture onto the people of India. They were quite ruthless about their evangelization campaign, trying to convert Hindus into Catholics. And the power of the Portuguese state and their culture was a, an ever-present thing in Indians' lives. Through all of that, it meant that Portuguese influence was strong. And well, when these Portuguese cooks arrived to India, they were trying to recreate their recipes from back home. And they found that the wine vinegar they were using for this dish tasted very similar to this tamarind pulp and black pepper mixture used by South Indian cooks. And to that mixture, they added garam masala, which of course is a mixture of black pepper, cinnamon, cloves, cumin, and a number of other spices. And together they created this new dish of vindaloo. Right, so the chilies make their way from Latin America, brought in by the Portuguese at the start of the 1500s. And the dish itself is this mixture of Portuguese and Indian cuisine. And in the late 1700s, the British come into the story and discover the vindaloo when they invade Goa. And eventually, this recipe makes its way from British India to England. And by the 1970s, it became the staple in Indian restaurants across Britain. And it's funny because at the 1998 FIFA World Cup, the English fans included vindaloo in their chants alongside cups of tea, knitting and cheddar cheese as this symbol of Englishness. And it's quite remarkable that this dish that only really two centuries before the British discovered as this Portuguese Indian hybrid cuisine became slowly the symbol of the traditional British takeaway. Thank you.
we've looked at the origins of several different dishes from South Asia, we're turning to see how these dishes then were served in restaurants in Britain and then in the United States. And one really striking thing about this story is that despite them being called Indian restaurants, a lot of these places in London, for example, aren't actually run by people from modern day India, but from people from Bangladesh and specifically people from Sulet in the northeast of the country. And while this blanket name of Indian restaurants or Indian food in London became the legacy of pre-independence India, where the whole region was just known as India and not by their individual regions or what then became independent countries. And the other side fact was that people in Britain were just not in touch enough to know the difference between the regions. And so this name of Indian food stuck. So the origins of this phenomenon of Saletis running most Indian restaurants in London comes from the fact that from the mid-1800s onwards, Saleti sailors were contracted to travel on British ships out of the port of Calcutta. And as you can imagine, they were paid a fraction of the wages of their British counterparts, and they worked the most difficult jobs on ship. One of those used to be stoking the boilers with coal, and the conditions of this were terrible. A lot of people died of heat stroke, and a lot of the time the boilers used to explode, leading to them being maimed or killed. And from that point through to the 1900s, the Celtic community that arrives in London was tied to food from, from two different sides. First, there were all these boarding houses and cafes in London's East End in places like Brick Lane, Commercial Road and Canning Town. And these places were built to house and, and cater for Celtics. And second, because of these really terrible wages and really poor working conditions, a lot of Celtics just jumped ship at the earliest opportunity and found work elsewhere. And when they did, the vast majority of them found work in clubs and hotels and restaurants in the West End, which made them very connected to the catering and food industry from the very beginning. Right. And because of this connection to the food and catering business, Saletis themselves started getting deeper into the restaurant business. And by 1948, there was this particular chain of Indian restaurants called the Bahadur Taj Mahal that was established in the likes of Brighton, Oxford and Cambridge. And this chain used to employ ex-sailors in their kitchens. And an extremely high proportion of Saletis living in Britain in the 40s and 50s had worked for them at one time or another before trying to set up their own Indian restaurants themselves. And right at the same time, the Second World War was coming to an end. And London, of course, had suffered this bombing campaign throughout the whole war. And it left these cafes and fish and chip shops in particular in London derelict because of the bombs. And well, the people that had come from Salette and then worked in restaurants and other catering industries, they used up their savings to buy the cafes. And once they were running them, they introduced South Asian food into the menu. And well, initially it was just extra items that people could order, but eventually the predominantly white clientele started experimenting with these dishes that they hadn't tried out before and discovered that curries actually went down really well with beer. And it was because of this that, well, tucking into a curry after a night out at the pub became a thing. And so these restaurants evolved to serve only Indian food rather than mixing two different cuisines under one menu. And on top of that, in the 60s and 70s, Indian food was just a really cheap, nice night out for a lot of students and so became extremely popular in university circles. 
And so by the end of the 20th century, Indian food was firmly part of British culture to the point that in 2001, Robin Cook, who was the foreign secretary at the time, declared chicken tikka masala as the national dish of Britain, which is funny because you would never be able to find chicken tikka masala in South Asia because, well, it just doesn't exist in their authentic cuisine. about Great Britain and how Indian restaurants make their way there, we're turning to New York and we're looking both at the history of restaurants there and also more broadly at how the culture and meaning of food changes as a result of migration. We're going to be talking about this topic with Krishnan Dure, who's the chair of the Department of Nutrition and Food Studies at the New York University. Thank you, Krishnandu, for coming onto the show. So in your book, you mentioned how migrating to New York changed your perceptions of food. So I wanted to ask, how has emigration in general shaped the purpose and idea of food for South Asians in New York? Uh, so I'm, I'm in some ways a very average South Asian male uh, when I left India in 1989, a middle class a male who I had done all kinds of progressive politics on trade union organizing, labor organizing, but I had never uh, cooked and I had been fed by people, uh, mostly women who had cooked for me. And in middle class households, it is mothers uh, or sisters and often working with servants. And servants, I'm using it the way it's used in South Asia. Uh, sociologists argue that in South Asia, there's a kind of a red line running through South Asian society, which is people are servants or people have servants. And we were kind of that class, lower middle class, uh, where we could afford to, in fact, have part-time help. And they were crucial to cooking and feeding and especially preparing the food, if not, uh, if not finishing it. My mom would often finish it. The larger story being that I had been fed three times a day and was totally unaware um, and uh, did not recognize the labor that went into the quotidian work of feeding people caregivers on an everyday basis. So for me, uh, immigration, amongst other things, uh, coming to the U.S., of course, initially I came to the U.S. to go to grad school. I didn't realize I was going to become an immigrant. I eventually became an immigrant, which is I stayed. W one, of the, one of the consequences of coming to the U.S., of course, was that uh, I was assaulted by nostalgia. And nostalgia expressed itself through food, particularly because food is so multi-sensory um, that food is one of the things, of course, one of the few things we take into the body. And of course, we were aware of what it looks like, what it uh, tastes like, and what it smells like, uh, uh, and the sense of touch also. And so food is this almost a synesthetic whole, which uh, through aroma, through taste, is linked to a memory directly. And uh, because of that, uh, memories are so constructed around the universe of what we eat, what we smell. And for me, that was also became self-evident. And uh, so I started cooking. And of course, I cooked badly. And, and one of my theories is that the most interesting thing about cooking 
is not in fact tradition, nor is it innovation. It is in fact failed replication. That is how most people cook. That is how most people learn how to cook. That's how most people become cooks like me. I tried to replicate my mother's cooking. Of course, I did not have the skill. I did not have the palate. I did not have the technique. So my repertoire became what I was trying to do to replicate my mother's cooking and in failing to do so was developing my own repertoire. And again, this is nothing new. Uh, When I learned about my mother's cooking, my mother, when she was married, uh, she was the first daughter-in-law. So she had to cook for a household of almost 25 people and she didn't know how to cook. Uh, And she uh, learned cooking uh, by trying to replicate her mother's cooking and in failing to do so, developed her own repertoire and eventually became, of course, the terrific cook and standard for my cooking that I was now trying to replicate. So uh, it is in this, I think it's a twofold process. For me, one was uh, this recognition of this labor and the labor of love and domestic labor that went into cooking and cleaning and caregiving. Uh, But I think equally importantly for me was this startling realization that I had thought myself to be very progressive, uh, doing all kinds of progressive politics, uh, but had not acknowledged the invisible labor of cooking and caregiving. And so that, in fact, was more acute to me because I came to the U.S. with the assumption that I was going to work on a historical sociology of underdevelopment, which is this question of why do certain parts of the world uh, stay underdeveloped uh, through modernity? But I quickly changed my topic to food, uh, cooking, uh, and uh, that is because I realized there was just an emerging literature at that point of time. And uh, uh, anthropologists like Jack Goody had written books like Cooking Cuisine and Class, uh, Mary Douglas, Levi Strauss. Uh, had written books on cooking uh, and others, sociologists were just beginning to pay attention. Uh, So my work pivoted towards this question of what happens when people move uh, very long distances and they are in some ways disinterred from their cultural universe and implanted in a new new location, in a new universe. Uh, How do they come to terms uh, with uh, availability of supply and dis- produce, vegetables, spices, fish in my case, and techniques of cooking uh, and caregiving and what changes, what does not, and how does it matter to people. So eventually that became uh, my dissertation, uh, which became my first book, which is The Migrant's Table, which is about um, Uh, how immigrants deal with this transformation in terms of ecology, location, uh, cultural context in trying to uh, replicate a culture. So I think that's the context in which um, my new kind of intellectual labor uh, began to emerge. And I pivoted towards working on this question of food, uh, migration, and um, cultural identity. And could you share with us the history behind the South Asian restaurants in New York. When and and how did they start and how did they evolve? Ah, in New York itself. So long story and a very interesting story, in fact. We uh, see the early history of South Asian food in in New York uh, at the kind of end of the 19th century, okay? And this is uh, in a beautiful book written by Vivek Bald called Bengali Harlem. He talks about about two dozen vendors 
and merchants circulating between Eastern India, uh, Southern Africa, and uh, places like New York and New Orleans. And so you have the first evidence of Indians or South Asians is, I think, a better term because they would turn out to be eventually what uh, we would call Bangladesh today. Of course, remember at the end of the 19th century, that's all India, what is going to be Pakistan and India and uh, eventually Bangladesh. So these are folks coming out of Bangladesh. Uh, They are selling uh, textiles, cotton textiles, and uh, they are circulating through these global cities of the 19th century. And uh, they get uh, trapped in a racialized space like New York City. I remember this is uh, segregated New York City. So they end up living in Harlem uh, and often marrying uh, African-American and Puerto Rican women. And so you have these uh, beautiful interracial cosmopolitan, I would say cosmopolitanism from below uh, families. Um, So that's the East Coast story, which is, that's one aspect of it. And many of them would be running cafes, uh, selling hot dogs. Even today, one of the most common uh, occupations of immigrants from Bangladesh today is in fact uh, uh, as street vendors. And so so you you see a long lineage of that. Uh, And then you see the next phase of it a lot of these cafes, small domestic places where a few people are fed in Harlem um, does not show up in the official record, does not show up in the telephone books, telephone directories until you get into the 1910s and the 1920s. You see the first Indian restaurant there and uh, there are about five of them by the 1949 uh, telephone directory. And uh, they begin to be facing outward. So that's one of the things about Indian restaurants in New York City is the population has never been that large historically to basically uh, survive economically just by feeding uh, inside the community. So it has always been directed outwards, um, say compared to a Chinese restaurant. Chinese restaurant at the end of the 19th century where mostly, for instance, had Chinese names, um, were directed at Chinese. And eventually they will also, uh, like Indian restaurants, become visible in the larger city. Uh, Non-natives, uh, non-insiders would start eating these foods. Uh, by the way, in New York City, there would be a craze for chop suey in the 1910s and the 1920s. Uh, and this is also the time of expansion of American palates, where Indian food and Chinese food will be added to um, not very common at that point of time, but but popular enough that they'll eventually, like today, the top few cuisines are in New York City are um, Italian, Mexican, Chinese, and Indian is about in terms of popularity. Uh, uh, about 10th uh, in in the ranking in terms of popularity. And so today there are, of course, when I say today, I mean just before COVID-19, all that is going to change. We shall see how it changes. Uh, In 2019, there were about 400 Indian restaurants and most Indian restaurants are run by Bangladeshis, Pakistanis, some Indians. uh, And um, out of the 400, about 90% of them would be uh, what would be called uh, relatively cheap curry houses and um, buffet lunches. 
and a small uh, segment would be upscale uh, where you pay say $35 for a dish uh, that's about 2% uh, of south asian restaurants uh, in new york city uh, just to give you a sense like in london for instance as most most people would know uh, indian restaurants uh, or south asian restaurants are very popular most popular according to yelp data and about 20% of indian uh, or south asian restaurants in london for instance are upscale uh, while only 2% of south asian restaurants in uh, new york city uh, are upscale and indian food is not um, it's popular but not as popular as uh, as it is in london there's a interesting relationship between popularity and prestige uh, of cuisine i would say indian food in new york city today is quite popular not as popular as mexican or italian or chinese but um not as prestigious um and that is slightly different between the way indian food works in the london market and the new york city market so in your book the ethnic restaurateur you talk about how some restaurateurs think of their restaurants as quote unquote just business and not as genuine cultural output so can you share with us your observations and reflections on this distinction maybe first i should uh, uh, thinking back on this question of uh, immigrant foodways one of the insight that emerges out of the book the migrant stable is uh, some meals like breakfasts and lunches change dramatically um, towards in this case uh, for uh, indian immigrants to the us uh, towards the us model of breakfast cereal um, and uh, toasts maybe uh, while dinner is in some ways much more uh, culturally conserving there's a sense that as breakfast and lunch becomes more and more american uh, dinner almost has to be in my case of uh, 126 households that i studied uh, more aggressively bengali even more bengali in new york city or in chicago than in calcutta at that point of time so there's a sense in which if you look at dinner there's a conserving impulse and if you look at breakfast and lunch there's an assimilative impulse So my argument was that if you just look at one of the meals in the day you could over theorize that uh people have assimilated or people are refusing to assimilate in fact people do both those things um they in some ways change and change like in their attire like in their language they also change their food habits uh but also they refuse to change some of their food habits and uh, this is a question of uh, kind of retaining a sense of cultural integrity and that seems to be acute more acute in the case of men and especially middle class men who um in my case in my study uh, did not or most of the time do not know how to cook or do not cook but they want their wives to be cooking lot more conservative meals for dinner while breakfast it is almost as if um uh, they are preparing uh, to enter into this american world and they change their habits partly driven by convenience partly driven by absence of domestic help uh, uh but also new kind of um attitudes uh, towards this public american world in some ways when they return home in the evening from work they shut the door behind them to cons- a sense of conserving their culture including traditional hierarchies of gender and generation uh, for instance uh, men especially men were a lot more conservative than women or children 
who in fact were a lot more, children were a lot more uh, amenable to American food. And the women, in fact, knew a lot more about cooking, did all the cooking, and in fact, knew a lot more about American foods from the friends, uh, from the mothers uh, of the children's friends, and hence had a much larger repertoire and a deeper, more complex understanding of American food. Now, coming back to your question uh, about uh, uh, the ethnic uh, restaurateur. The ethnic restaurateur, uh, and I have one figure in there, Muhammad Rasul, uh, who is one of the main characters. Uh, he says, well, this is my business, and I, I feed about 100 people a day, uh, and uh, I cook this food, and it's, he calls his restaurant Pakistani, Indian, and Spanish. It's a very interesting uh, classification. Uh, and uh, he is insistent that this is all just business. Culture for him is what happens at home, uh, what, in fact, his wife does. He never cooks at home, okay? He runs a business. Uh, he runs a restaurant business. He sometimes cooks in the restaurant. Most of the times, it is his employees who cook. Uh, but at home, he uses, he consumes more traditional, what he considers Pakistani food, cooked by his wife. That is a domain of gender. And this is interesting because it links to my first book, this idea that the home is the domain of culture, conserving it, while commerce and public culture is something different uh, in the public sphere. So he sees his restaurant business, unlike outsiders who might think, well, he's a Pakistani restauranter, so he is in some ways commodifying aspects of his culture. He sees his work as purely business, and he says it is only business and it is only business. By that, what he means is that this has almost nothing to do with culture. And of course, we know everything has to do with culture, but in his self-conception, it is food he's selling to an audience, and he is changing. He wanted to sell Pakistani food, and his initial target when he was uh, starting that restaurant was Pakistani cab drivers. And your audience may or may not know that almost 80% of cab drivers in New York City are South Asian. Uh, and, uh, and he was hoping to target the cab drivers. But he ended up in a street corner where there was not much space to park cabs. So eventually he could not, in fact, feed the Pakistani cab drivers he was aspiring to feed when he uh, initially built the restaurant. So he ended up feeding people, uh, basically the foot traffic, uh, around, in this case, around uh, 14th Street uh, and 1st Avenue. And a lot of it was foot traffic that was coming out of the subway. And there happened to be various kinds of immigrants uh, or uh, Native uh, or Americans. Uh, and, um, and that is why he says he added what he called Spanish food. And by in his understanding, Spanish food is about the same as Indian and Pakistani food, say chicken in a gravy, just with less spices. And that's what his is understanding. So in fact, part of the aspiration of this book was to, in fact, engage with the immigrant imagination uh, about the city. Uh, and in some ways, a lot has been written about what Americans want, especially white Americans want out of immigrant culture, why they go to restaurants. Uh, there's a rich literature on that. Very little has been written about how immigrants see that transaction. And we know we have data from the 1850 onwards, when, we, when a census collected data on occupations and birthplace, that in fact, immigrants have been feeding Americans, uh, at least from 1850, if 
not earlier and most probably earlier. They just happened to be different immigrants. There were Irish immigrants and German immigrants in the 1850s. There were Italian immigrants and Jewish immigrants in the 1880s and to 1920s. And post-1965, they are mostly Latinx or Asian immigrants. Um, and Asian in this expansive way, which is Chinese uh, and South Asian and some uh, Middle Eastern. So uh, kind of this relationship between immigrants and natives has been a very important part of urban American culture and probably urban cultures everywhere. Uh, and so uh, my attempt was to study the relationship from the point of view of the immigrant entrepreneur, a small entrepreneur who is ubiquitous in any global city you go anywhere in the world. It is usually rural to urban migrants or transnational migrants that are feeding the people. And hence, my, my attempt was to study that relationship from the point of view of the immigrant and not from the point of view of the Anglo uh, consumer, because there was enough work in sociology, almost 99% of the work in sociology is from the point of view of the Anglo consumer uh, of the uh, uh, exchange in terms of food. And Krishnandu, in the beginning, you mentioned how the early South Asian restaurants in New York actually catered towards people that weren't within the South Asian community. And in that sense, they were outward facing. Could you tell us a bit more about what the reception was like for South Asian food in New York? and how it's evolved through time. Yeah, there's this um, um, uh, early piece, and I cite it uh, in my book, where a guy, this is in the 1930s, uh, uh, goes to this, uh, what looks like an apparently Indian restaurant, uh, and, uh, and he's kind of, he's flailing, this is a, a writer, a food writer, and he's writing in his uh, booklet of reviews of New York City restaurants, and he talks about this place and he references it as a Turkish place, maybe as uh, an Arab place and an Indian place. So all this, in some ways, old fashioned Orientalism, which was uh, us, the Anglo culture, and then the rest of them all flattened into one. So he creates this synthetic figure of the Turk, the Arab and the Indian. And they're indistinguishable. Uh, and for him, it is just the exotic other. And very different from the exotic other that is, say, African-American. Uh, because remember, African-Americans are also now, at this point of time, just beginning to migrate uh, from uh, the uh, south to the north. Uh, and uh, also, of course, there has been a substantial African-American population in the north itself. Uh, so this relationship to the food of the other is a mix between curiosity, disdain, and some amount of disgust. Uh, and you see that, I mean, this is not just Indian food, um, attitude about towards Indian food, especially attitude towards Chinese food, is driven with this kind of a orientalizing, sinophobic uh, anxiety about God knows what the Chinese eat. And they're repeated. New York Times has a headline. San Francisco Chronicle has an headline in 1886 saying, China man eats octopus and a big kind of making a big deal out of it. You also see that 
with the attitude towards uh, Italian food, where most people would be surprised now. Um, and Italians were, I would say, insecurely white. Uh, they were not considered white people, and uh, their food was considered too um, garlicky, uh, too spicy, uh, encouraging consumption of alcohol, which is why Italians drink so much wine. And remember, this gets entangled in the Prohibition-era anxiety about um, Italian diet, Italian citizenship, Italian personhood. Uh, so this is part of the early 20th century, I would say, racial and class formation, uh, where the culture of the other is looked with a mix of curiosity, disdain, and disgust. Uh, and a lot of that is going to change after the civil rights movement, uh, which in the 1950s and in the 1960s would make uh, disgust and disdain towards the other less legitimate. Um, and we know even from now that all that hasn't gone away. The disdain and disgust towards the other remains and remains uh, as a subterranean current. But the civil rights movement would radically transform the attitude towards the culture of others. Uh, and in fact, will provide an opening towards what sociologists would come to call a new kind of omnivorousness, which is the new attitude towards music, towards food is going to be, if you are going to be cool, you have to eat everything and listen to everything. It's a very new dispensation, almost the opposite of disdain, disgust to this new omnivorousness. And you can see that also, uh, that, that transformation from a different angle in places like India. My parents live in a small town in the east coast of India. One of their favorite food is to go out for Chinese food. Uh, that's one cuisine. Of course, Indian Chinese food has been absorbed into Chinese food is to Indian food, what Mexican food is to American food, I would say, and uh, ubiquitous, available. But in most of the time, my parents are very conservative. They would eat the same 10, 12, 15 dishes uh, day after day, every day, and they are not going to eat certain kinds of food. They're not going to eat certain kinds of meat. They're not going to eat certain kinds of seafood. There's a kind of a conservative impulse, which is the opposite of omnivorousness, which is a sense that other people's food is good for other people, not for us. Uh, that's a very that's an attitude that is that sounds very different from what's happening in New York City, at least what was happening in New York City from about the 1970s to I would say 2020. And we will we will see what happens after COVID-19, whether we return to some of these subterranean anxieties about other people's food. Uh, for instance, Chinese food uh, consumption dramatically dropped off um, in the early months. Uh, of uh, the COVID-19. But uh, the general argument uh, has been by sociologists is a new omnivorousness emerged uh, post-civil rights and that speeded up through the 70s and 80s where, for instance, Italian food became very cool and sexy and everyone talked about how great Italian food was going to be. So the, the beautiful part about doing long historical studies like I do is that you see the same food and the same people treated totally differently um, 100 years later. Uh, and uh, like Japanese food became the coolest thing in the 1980s and everybody was eating sushi. Who would have predicted that uh, meat and potatoes 
those Americans are going to jump for sushi uh, in the 1980s. So, so some of my work is this uh, uh, question of continuity and discontinuity. And uh, uh, Sidney Mintz, an anthropologist who wrote a beautiful book called Sweetness and Power, uh, used to say uh, that uh, people are very conservative about their food habits until they change their mind. That's something that's supposed to have emerged in the U.S. post-civil uh, rights, 1970s and 1980s. And we see South Asian food entangled in this complex matrix of class, race, and cultural difference in American cities. Thank you so much, Krishnandu, for sharing with us all these observations about how food is lived in these contexts of migration and the impact it's had, especially in New York. So in this episode, we've explored how globalized South Asian cuisine is, both in terms of the ingredients used and also how it's spread across the world. But that only really scratches the surface. If you look at the likes of South Africa, West Indies, Fiji and more, you can see how Indian immigrants have influenced the different tastes and dishes of each region. And then we have the case of Japan, and it wasn't actually South Asian immigrants in this story that took South Asian food over to Japan. It was actually the British taking their version of that to the country. And it all happened at the end of the 19th century when Japan, after a really long period of isolation, had just opened up the country to the rest of the world. And when the British arrived there, they took this version of, of theirs of South Asian food to the country. And... The upper middle classes in Japan were big on trying to imitate Western tastes. And so tried to imitate this liking for curry and ended up making their own dishes like Japanese chicken katsu curry, for example. And so South Asian food came to be in so many different forms. We have the very beginnings of many dishes being the influence of very different cuisines. And then South Asian cuisine went on to then impact the world and shape the national cuisines of so many countries. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and making it this far. We've got many more exciting stories coming up in future episodes and on our Instagram page at seasoned.migrant. If you have any thoughts, any comments or any ideas for future topics, please send us a message. Also, we love feedback. So let us know what you loved and how we could improve. You've been listening to the Seasoned Migrant Podcast. We'll be back next week. Goodbye.